to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Welcome back to regular OnScript broadcasting. This is Matt Lynch, a host of the OnScript podcast based at Westminster Theological Center in the UK along with Matt Bates at Quincy University in Illinois, Drew Johnson at the King's College in New York City, Aaron Heim at Denver Seminary, and Chris Tilling at St. Melitus in the UK as well. If you didn't hear our last episode with Professor Dr. Irvine Shablatsum, or you did and were left scratching your head, it's probably because you didn't listen to the end of the episode, where we wished each other a happy April Fool's Day. And just for the record, it was indeed a spoof episode. And I must say, it gave us no end of pleasure to see listeners write to us in absolute disbelief that we would bring this pseudo-scientist theologian on the show. Um, if it caused you distress, we're, you know, we're not happy about that, but uh, hopefully this, this puts things to rest. Um, there's, a, there's a funny thing because we, um, we someone on the... Oh, the guys on the Bible Project podcast mentioned this podcast, which we really appreciate. And so all of a sudden we got a whole bunch of new listeners and we realized that the very first episode was our April Fool's episode. So sorry to those of you who have who have come on over and, and wondered what on earth uh, the Bible Project guys were recommending. I hope the quality of other things we do is uh, up to up to stand industry standards. I think we think it is. Um, but if you haven't listened yet, go back and listen to our April Fool's episode. It was a lot of fun. And kudos to Carl Palmer for his great acting skills. Um, Carl and I work together at WTC. He's in IT. And um, he he developed the character and and everything for that whole episode. And I thought it was a lot of I, We were dying laughing. like So we had to... We were recording at opposite ends of the room. Well, together, at the beginning, we were recording across the table from each other, but I, I couldn't stop laughing. So we had to separate ourselves across the room from each other and record so we, so we could uh, get through the episode without me having to um, pause because I was, I was laughing so hard. And thanks to Doug Horch for the idea for the episode. It was it was he who came up with the, uh, the idea of bringing together Paul and multiverse theory with a Professor Shablatsum. So it's people like Professor Shablatsum that really advance the conversation in um, humorous ways. Okay, as I said, we're back to regular programming, and my oh my, are we back. Uh, This is a really good episode. Aaron Heim interviews Cynthia Westfall. So let's get on with it. Hope you enjoy. Sometimes people ask me, Aaron, why would you want to be a Pauline scholar? Don't you know what Paul said about women? And I confess that as a seminary student, Paul's letters were absolutely not my favorite subject. But today I'm hosting Cindy Westfall, and her book, Paul and Gender, is a game changer. And I wish that it had been around when I was a seminary student. She goes beyond the typical treatment of the prohibition passages and provides a holistic theology of gender by analyzing Greco-Roman culture and stereotypes, and by looking at gender through the lenses of creation, the fall, eschatology, the body, calling, and authority. This book rightly won an Award of Merit from Christianity Today in 2018, and we are thrilled and honored that Cindy Westfall is here to discuss it with us today at OnScript. Dr. Cynthia Long-Westfall has been at McMaster Divinity College since 2005, teaching courses in New Testament, Greek exegesis, biblical interpretation, and women in ministry. In addition to being a top-notch academic, she has a wide range of ministry experience. While in campus ministry in Flagstaff, Arizona, Dr. Westfall was licensed for ministry with the Conservative Baptist Association. Cindy also participated in the foundation and development of Open Door Fellowship, Providence Network, and Open Door Ministries in Denver, Colorado, which form a ministry complex dedicated to those who are um, helping those who are at risk for homelessness and and, uh, dedicated to discipleship in the urban community, which is a ministry that is really near and dear to my heart as someone who lives and works in Denver. In Canada, 
Cindy was a founder and chair of the Board of Providence Canada, which has ministered to those who are at risk for homelessness in Hamilton, Ontario. She's also a director and deacon of um, Wentworth Baptist Church. Cindy is the author of numerous publications, including a discourse analysis of the structure of Hebrews, Relationship Between Form and Meaning, which was published by TNT Clark in 2006. And she is the co-editor of The Bible and Social Justice, along with Brian Dyer. She is also a consultant in an international committee of cross-discipline academics who have compiled and conducted the largest academic survey of Muslim women in the world. They are studying why women choose to veil, and the pilot research was done through interviews at McMaster University. I'm delighted today to be talking to Cindy about her new book, Paul and Gender, published by Baker Academic in 2016, which includes fresh perspectives on the most (laughs) controverted texts, offering viable alternatives for some notorious interpretive problems in certain Pauline passages. Dr. Westfall reframes gender issues in a way that stimulates thinking, promotes discussion, and moves conversation forward. As Dr. Westfall explores the significance of Paul's teaching on both genders, she seeks to support and equip males and females to serve in their area of gifting, regardless of social status, race, or gender. Dr. Cindy Westfall, welcome to OnScript. Thank you. Now, Sydney and I have met a few times, and we've shared a few meals together now in restaurants, but she's never been to my house for dinner. <laughs> so hypothetically, Sydney, just so people can get to know you, if I invited you over for dinner, what would you bring to share, and what time would you hope that we would eat? Oh, this is great. Well, I probably would be torn between looking through the recipes that I've collected over the years, and I actually have composed a cookbook for my family that I, I have in Dropbox and I share I share uh, share it with people who are interested but I everything I like that I make I put in that book and I try new recipes regularly so I'll be torn between the best of the best in that cookbook or the greatest looking recipe in probably in the Bon Appetit email. <laughs> That, and that's what I would probably do for you. Probably I'd try a new one on you. Ooh, I love Bon Appetit. That just, that spoke my love language, yeah. Cindy. Um, and, and what time do you hope we would eat dinner? Oh, probably at eight. And you eat dinner late. That That's just... It could be seven, but you're eight... Definitely when SBL is, come, is, is in Denver, in Colorado, next year, we'll have to have you over so we can eat dinner at eight o'clock and cook something out of Bon Appetit. That... That sounds just fantastic. Well, we're on. Absolutely. So this book, Paul and Gender, I, I want to say at the outset for our listeners, this is a book that I wish had been around when I was at the early stages of my academic career as a seminary student. Um, I wish that I had had a compelling res- uh, resource like this one to just help me think through uh, Paul's theology of gender in a more holistic way than what was available, at least when I was a student starting out. And I sense from reading this book that you felt a certain calling to write it. Was there anything specifically that drove you to undertake this project? Or was it just years or a culmination of years spent as a female in the evangelical academy? Well, I have to say that when you were describing you needed the book while you were in seminary, while you were in school... The book was in many ways composed when I went while well, I went through the exact same experiences. And it's really good to get together with other women who have been through seminary and been um, in ministry to talk about the experiences people face and to know that we have to work through issues that men entering ministry never have to work through. Even just to walk into a seminary class um, is is an issue in and of itself. I was telling you a little earlier about being in a Greek class in which I was the only woman with about 30 men. And so it still is not uncommon that this is the case for women entering biblical studies. So I needed to do the work for myself. Uh, You say in your introduction that women's voices, women's voices are necessary for interpreting Paul's theology of gender. Why do you think it's so important for women to be reading and interpreting the Pauline texts that deal with gender, both masculine language in Paul and feminine language in Paul? 
Well, because number one, uh, Paul was writing to men and women. And one of the actual arguments of, of really even more of a complementarian argument is that, is that uh, men and women are completely different. And so when passages are addressed to women and men uh, actually uh, are, feel entitled to be the only ones who interpret those passages, there's going to be a misinterpretation because really the, the target audience should be the one to interpret that text. And so, and so women, as I, as I said in the book, should interpret their own male. What, what then makes this book, your book, um, different from the myriad studies that have been done on Paul and gender. What is it that other studies have missed, other books have missed, that you're trying to illuminate? Well, first of all, um, when, it, when uh, Stan Porter asked me to do the book, he asked me to do it on Paul and gender. I'm somewhat of a literalist. So usually when we say Paul and gender, we mean Paul and women. But I said, no, the book's not Paul and women, it's Paul and gender. So first off, square one, this is going to be about gender. And maybe people out there are surprised, but men are, male is a gender as well as female. So I determined from the first that it was going to be about both males and females. And I was going to try to cover them evenly. So that's number one. And that's what makes the book so interesting and fascinating is that you do devote even space to dealing with the masculine language in Paul and Paul's um, theology of masculinity, just as much as you deal with these um, passages that are notoriously um, difficult uh, when in regard to women. And careful attention all the way through this book, careful attention to first century culture and context is really the backbone of your study. And just through engaging first century culture, you repeatedly call interpreters to examine their own presuppositions, examine their own cultural biases. And I confess, nowhere was this more ap apparent for me and convicting for me uh, than in your discussion. It's, it's in the first chapter even on veiling in 1 Corinthians 11. Because Western Christians, and perhaps even uh, especially Western Christian feminists, and I'll include myself in that, uh, often see veiling as a straightforwardly oppressive practice. But you're arguing that Paul is actually doing something quite different with veiling. How does veiling work in this text or in first century culture? And, um, and how are women in the Roman Empire affected by veiling? <laughs> Right. Well, you have to place yourself back in the first century, first of all. And one of the things that a modern um, interpreter will have is that they can't extract their understanding of the passage from a Western worldview in which we have, you know, liberated women and women don't have to wear veils. And, and this is true across most of the churches, most of the Christian churches, is that women, we, don't, we think that that's a culturally bound um, command that women should veil. And, uh, and so where Western society comes into conflict with societies that veil, it has created a certain amount of tension where we feel like we need to enlighten these societies to remove this patriarchal oppressive symbol, even even people who are traditional in their views of gender actually will feel this way. But you have to take yourself back to where there was no uh, Western worldview, where the society in general veiled, and it wasn't really an option to do otherwise. And so in that, within that society, yes, there were some oppressive passage, uh, practices about veiling, that is, uh, men controlled the veiling. Men determined who would veil and who wouldn't veil. But women had their own understanding of what the veil meant. And basically, male or female, uh, a veil meant that a woman was honorable. Uh, and that to not wear a veil meant that she was shamed. And so that if you were in that society, you would actually desire to have that um, symbol of honor and really piety, no matter what your religious convictions were, and uh, purity. And to not veil was to say that you were 
sexually available and that you could be sexually accosted and no one would be penalized for it, at least under Roman law. So then what are the key markers in 1 Corinthians 11 that should alert an interpreter that Paul's commands are actually liberating and equalizing rather than oppressive? Well, the first thing that you and I both probably noticed when we went over that passage in the Greek was that um, the passage about uh, about women and authority on their head was actually different in the Greek than it was in our English translation. So in our in- English translations, um, it says, in all my translations until most recently, it said a woman ought to have a symbol of authority over her head. But symbol of was always in italics. Now, I actually knew that that meant it wasn't part of the original text. So if you take a symbol if you take a symbol of out, then you've got a woman ought to have authority over her head. You look at that in the Greek, you do every, every study of phrasing and word study you want, and it comes out that the, the subject, the subject of, 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 day, of day, that is the, she ought to have authority, is the one who has authority. <laughs> So what Paul was actually saying is a woman ought to have authority over her head. And of course, um, all the traditional interpretation was saying just the opposite. A woman should have no authority over her head. She's got to be under authority. This is what they assumed the passage was about. And so they said, no, 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 no. Okay, so we got to add some words. And, And they did some, you know, some gymnastics around the verse to make it say exactly the opposite. It's not that she ought to have authority, but she was under authority. So what you're arguing is that Paul, by saying a woman that should have authority over her own head, is actually arguing that women, regardless of status, regardless of sexual history, regardless of anything, should have the right to wear the veil if they choose to, because it's a symbol of purity and honor rather than... um, men dictating who can wear this symbol. Right, and partly you look back at the, at the, um, the language uh, that in which Paul says, um, if she does not wear a veil on her head, then let her be shaved. And so that sound has been interpreted as Paul saying, you know, if a woman's not going to be uh, submissive to your law about veiling, then shave her. Does that sound like Paul? <laughs> but as opposed to saying what has been said about the veil really historically as a dominant theme, that if a woman is not veiled, she is shamed. And so it said, you might as well shave her if you don't allow a woman to be shaved while she's praying and prophesying. You might as well shave her because you've shamed her. And so if you come from a culture that's veiled and there were never any options to uh, express yourself as a woman of honor, you would want to be veiled. If you were in Corinth and weird things were going on sexually, like the letter to the Corinthians say, that wasn't a safe place. So we have to say that the congregation was assuming that either all women or some women should not wear veils. And so now there's where the interpretation comes in, which is it? And, and it, both of them are interesting because uh, you know that the early church talked about um, fellow members in kinship language. They said, we're all brothers and sisters. So you can actually, actually, if you get kind of reading on the attitude of the Corinthian church, you could actually imagine them saying, we're family here. Take it off. And, and, if I were in that situation, I would look at that guy straight in the eye and say, in your dreams, I, will, I am not taking off my veil. And you see this scenario being played out in traditional Muslim homes all over the place where you know women are at home and friends of the family come to visit and, and they'll say, take it off. And they'll go, no way, I will not take off that veil because of what it means. And so what implications do you think that interpretation has for, say, contemporary worship settings, if any? Well, major implications for contemporary worship settings is that if you're singing in a worship band, dress conservatively. 
don't draw it. In fact, I think that the best way to dress is to not to draw attention to yourself. Try to dress in such a way that is not conspicuous. And I would say that for men too. I think that men who dress conspicuously and cool and leading worship are drawing attention to something other than the Lord. They are competing with the glory of God. And so when you are up leading worship, whether you're a male or you're a female, the way you present yourself and the way you act needs to be directing attention um, away from yourself and towards God, which I think is one of the themes that is at the heart of First Corinthians 11. But the other side of that question was... Um, what if this was about honorable women veiling and slaves and freed women and ex-prostitutes or maybe even potentially practicing prostitutes? you got to understand the situation. They would be slaves as well. Um, they would, in the culture, not be allowed to veil. So imagine um, that in the, in the church, in the Pauline community, that we know that all these different elements of the underclass of society are being drawn together. And so there would be some honor, some women that would be considered honorable that would be allowed to veil. But there would also be a number of slaves and for sure freed women and possibly even prostitutes. And everyone would be on the same page, even the women, to say, well, these people aren't allowed to veil. But... There would be a question on that. Aren't I a new creature in Christ? Aren't I, a new, aren't, aren't I part of the new creation? Doesn't that make me honorable? Shouldn't I be able to veil? And, and, and the problem being, of course, if you have someone who's a, a, either a freed woman, a prostitute, or a slave who is sexually accessible, getting up and praying and prophesying, that is sending a message about her sexual availability. That's the kind of message you really don't want to be broadcasting during your worship service. And so Paul, when, when I say Paul says, we don't have any other practice, I go, everybody veils. Everybody veils. All women are honorable, and they're to be treated as such. And that's an amazing paradigm shift, though, to talk about the veil as a symbol of equality and mm -hmm. a symbol of honor really, I think, cuts against the grain of so much exegesis on this passage. And that's why I found this chapter, I, I really enjoyed the whole book, but this chapter, um, it just, it catches your attention and you go, boy, you're really, you're really onto something here. This is a huge, huge contribution to uh, our understanding of First Corinthians as a community, and certainly First Corinthians 11. Let's move on to talk about your chapter on stereotypes. And I actually think um, I really enjoyed the veiling one, but this was my, um, that was maybe the most paradigm shifting. The chapter on stereotypes was my favorite. Right. It was my favorite chapter, mm -hmm. simply because it made me go back and read all of these Pauline texts, Pauline texts that use masculine stereotypes, Pauline texts that use feminine stereotypes, and read them for the gendered language. Um, and it, I, I hadn't paid attention to that previously uh, in quite the same way. And I think it really moves the conversation about Paul and gender forward simply because you're taking on Paul and gender and not Paul and women. You talk about the um, the metaphors in Ephesians 6 and Paul's mm -hmm. armor of God right. language in Ephesians 5 right. with the role of the husband uh, who is performing all of these typically feminine activities. Right. Basically, you're arguing that Paul is gender bending these stereotypes. Deliberately. <laughs> Deliberately. Manipulating them. So why do you think he's doing that? And what can we learn from it? It was pretty dangerous, you know, for him to do so. And I think this is what we have to recognize when we look at how Paul is, is using gender roles and gender language that he both is manipulating it and he's also being careful not to go so far as to be totally rejected because you can go too far. But he he is, um, he goes pretty far in um, basically applying um, language such as um, one, of, one of the uh, one of the words that's been really exploited in this whole conversation is the word that means to act like a man. And in, I think it's at the end of First Corinthians, act like a man. And people have said, look, he says to act like a man. And I remember getting up in front of a group and saying, I've got bad news for you all who are, you know, you're trying to argue uh, against, you know, these kinds of stereotypical roles ruling the church. Paul said, act like a man. He did. I said, the problem is he said it to women. <laughs> 
<laughs> because it's clearly a passage. It's a closing passage that he's addressing to the congregation. It's clear in First Corinthians that he's addressing men and women. Then at the end, he says, well, it's, it is literally act like a man, but it's really a metaphor for be courageous. And Paul was a Paul wanted women to be courageous as well as men. And so, I mean, you think about uh, Paul's writing on spiritual warfare and how we're fighting this battle against the spiritual forces of evil. And so you got to put on your armor. And so you, the masculine metaphors were most suitable for fighting a battle, you know, fighting in the arena, running the races, um, and fighting a war, fighting a battle. All these things were metaphors he used for the challenge we have in living the Christian life. This is one of his big metaphors. So he's like, yeah, women, you do this too. And so some of the earliest stories we have is about women taking these quite seriously. And so when women were persecuted for their faith and they were sent to the Roman arena, they went to these passages and they said, you know what? I'm a man. I'm like a man. And it's a very it's very weird for us, the gender bending. They they didn't even say I'm like a man. They say, I am a man. I had a dream and I was a man. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna go to and I'm gonna go to battle here. And then they did. And then when women died for their faith like that, people were were amazed. They said, What what is it that helps women to go beyond what you would expect? Well, it's because there are really great things about masculine stereotypes that can be used to encourage humans to be better people. And there are really great things about female stereotypes that can encourage us as Christians to be better, all Christians to be better people. And so he's taking the best of the best and saying, this is what a pers- the people of God should look like. This is how the people of God should act. And let's talk about the the feminine stereotypes that you point out in the role of the husband in Ephesians 5, because that's also very interesting, and I don't think people always pick up on it. Can you um, identify some of those and um, point out why Paul is being pretty subversive oh, in totally. what he's saying? Yes, it's, it's, a, it's really a very funny passage, unless you don't want to hear it. But really, Ephesians 5 is often thought about the passage that tells women to submit, but it's much, much more concentrated on what a husband's supposed to be like. And so a lot of times people say, well, he's supposed to be like Christ, and and um, and Christ's the head of the church, and Christ's, so Christ rules the church, so he rules. So, well, you got to read Ephesians 5, but it starts with, it says, okay, you got, you know, the, the husband's the head of the wife, like Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior. I go, well, that's very manly to be a Savior and all that, you know, lay yourself down. But then, after he says he's the Savior, then he gets weird. He says, you know, because, because you know, Jesus washed the church, gave the church a bath. He, you know, and, and you can, in the language would suggest he presents her with a dress and it's all been washed and ironed, which and spot removal, there's not a spot on it. And so, and so this is what headship was defined as. And when you actually look at this language, you say, well, this is not male, man's work. This is what a mother does for the bride. But he's saying basically Jesus, you know, made her a dress and washed and ironed it and removed all the spots. And so she was radiant and beautiful and gave her a bath on top of it. Men do not give women baths. Women give men baths in this culture. And then he goes on in the passage to say, you know, you're going to have to take care of your wife like you take care of your own um, body. And so he said, you provide clothes, you provide clothes, you nurture it like a little baby, you rock a baby and you feed it. And this is really what the picture is. And so people said, well, this is what men do. No, it's not what men do. This is not the language of men going out in the field and hunting the beast and bringing the bacon home. This is a story of men rocking their wives and and, and bathing them and, and treating them actually like a mother treats a child. It's more child-rearing language. It's definitely out of that register. And then when he says, he says, you've got to treat your wife like, like your own body. And by the time you get to the end of it, you realize, and Paul is actually taking that head and body. He goes, okay, you're the head. Jesus is the head, and the wife's your body, and that's how you're one. So treat her like she's the body. Well, who's the man now? 
And I, I, I certainly, before reading this book, had not noticed just how gendered that language was and how it picks up on stereotypes and then subverts them and puts them in new registers. Right. And it really, uh, if we take the metaphor seriously, then it's a beautiful picture oh. of mutual submission. And what a joyful picture of marriage and what a joyful picture of worship and um, of Christ's own sacrifice. It's it just, it totally changes the tenor of the passage. And I'm sure for a lot of um, women, especially reading this book who have had the experience of having Ephesians 5 sort of thrown at them, reading this is going to be um, just a, a tremendously encouraging experience. And this is, and the thing is, why are we surprised? Because in the teachings of Jesus, you become like a child, be a child, act like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. In the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul, you become like a slave uh, to minister to all. Well, what's the third of that paradigm? You become like a woman in order to submit to all and to serve all. And so you've got the slave, the child, and the woman, which are the lowest elements of society. And he, and he asks us all to take on those roles. And this is what I would say the, the basic foundation of the understanding of authority and the chapter of authority. And really the underlying assumption of the whole book is that our whole understanding of power and authority is wrong that consistently with Jesus and consistently with Paul, we take the last position. Okay, Cindy, we're going to do a speed round. All right. Are you ready? Okay. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions, and you're going to answer them with your first instinct. There's no right or wrong answer, except for one question, then there's a wrong answer. <laughs> I'll let you guess which one it is. All right. Okay, if you could be any animal in the world, what would it be? I think I just chose horse lately. <laughs> And what is the most important book published in biblical studies in the last 50 years? Well, that's a hard one. <laughs> that's a really hard one. You know, I, I'm going to say off the top of my head, it's Sanders' um, work on Paul. Mm. New, uh, Sanders' groundbreaking work on the new perspective on Paul. Nothing has looked the same. Mm. Was that, that, was, that was within the last 50 years. Yes, it, it was. was quite yes. recently, actually, in the whole scheme of things. No, the Pauline studies have totally shifted as a result of Sanders' work. They have. That's true. Yeah. Where is somewhere you've always wanted to travel? That I haven't yet? Yes. Oh, this is terrible. I have to admit, <laughs> I haven't been to Paris. <gasps> Ooh. Yeah. That's a good answer. Yeah. Okay. In one sentence, convince someone to move to Hamilton, Ontario. Well, I would convince people to move to Hamilton, Ontario, because I would like them to study with us at McMaster Divinity College. And we've got a great thing going on at McMaster Divinity College. I think we're, uh, we've got a groundbreaking academic circle there. Mm. And it's a, and so especially for those who are doing their PhDs, you know, it's a, it's an amazing experience with an amazing opportunity. So that's why I'd say come to Hamilton. Mm. Which hockey teams do you support? U.S. hockey teams or Canadian uh, hockey teams? I have to say I'm, I'm supporting the Maple Leafs. Oh, okay, that's the wrong football. answer. No. Ask me about football. <laughs> Is that the wrong answer? Right, wrong? I'm from well, Minnesota. Okay. I'm from Minnesota. I, uh, yeah. We have a special um, special place of disdain in our hearts for Canadian hockey in Minnesota. Well, the Maple Leafs <laughs> haven't been giving up too much of a fight until mm. just recently, so... <laughs> Maybe that's okay. No, but it's okay. I would like to say that, that I was supporting the Denver team, but I never really got attached to it. And you can't help but get attached to hockey when you're in That's Ontario. true. You can't. That's true. Yeah. Do you have any hidden talents? Oh, many. Okay. So it depends on who they're hidden from. Um, one that I'm, I'm very careful about promoting, although I will admit to doing it, is I am, I'm an... I was trained to be a Victorian woman, and this is, and so I am an expert needlewoman. I I can sew. I just sewed my daughter's wedding dress. Okay, I just confessed <gasps> it. Uh, wow! And and, uh, and also I knit and crochet um, and hat. All right, mountains or ocean? Ocean. Oh, I don't know. Both. <laughs> let's go. Let's go where the mountains meet the ocean. I, oh. I, oh, I, I have I have gone for mountains over over ocean, but I really miss the ocean mm. so much. What's one thing you wish all of your incoming PhD students knew? Other than 
a really, really good foundational biblical knowledge. I wish they understood uh, methodology and what counts for evidence when they do the research. Hmm. Will you sing a song for us right now? Oh, okay. What song do you want? Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Oh, that's wonderful. I think you're the first, second person that's done that and been willing to do it on the... I used to think I had a good voice, and now I'm much more humble about it, but I love to sing. Oh, you should love to sing. just a part of life. I love to sing, too. (laughs) I'm uninhibited. No, no, it's fantastic. I do, too. I do, too. All right. Yeah, I didn't get asked to sing a song when they interviewed me, so. That's a shame. (laughs) Do you have a nice voice? I I don't like to admit that I think that I do, but I think that I do. I sang for a long time. When I was reading your book, there were a few moments where I was really especially struck by your willingness to confront the the difference in existential experiences between men and women mm-hmm. in contemporary contexts, and you and confronted them head on. And your chapter on calling was one of those. And there was one section in particular that caught my attention because it's an experience that I see repeated over and over with my female and div students. Um, every semester. So in your chapter on calling, you contrast the experiences of men and women who are called to ministry, and you record John Piper's call to ministry, which he describes as, and this is a quotation, my heart almost bursting with longing and feeling an irresistible call to preach. And you note there the role that feeling and emotion play in Piper's own calling. Yet you point out that when women feel called to ministry or where they have an emotive or an experiential draw toward ministry, that their experiences are discounted as being too emotional or illegitimate. And you say, and now I'm going to quote you, a man's experience and emotion are treated as normative in his call to ministry, but a woman's emotions and experience are treated as suspect and can be invalidated if they lead her to a place that is outside of wherever the male authorities draw the line uh, delimiting the appropriate sphere of ministry for women. So what, in your mind, Cindy, is scripture's remedy for this attitude? And how can we better affirm and support a woman's call to ministry? Oh, well, I I got thrown a curve on that when I was somehow expecting a different question. But the the remedy is a robust theology on spiritual gifts. If we, it's so funny how we take 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, and take really what are quite odd interpretations of that, and we use them against women to actually, 1 Corinthians 11, the whole starting point of that is women do pray and prophesy. But by the time we get to 14, women aren't allowed to pray and prophesy. And in the middle, we've got this amazing passage from uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 that talk about spiritual gifts. And it's inclusive language. I mean, there is absolutely no ambiguity. It's clear. Everyone's got a spiritual gift. Everyone is supposed to be using it. No one is supposed to say to another, I have no need of you. I would love to see that passage taken literally because that passage has been ignored and people have been saying to women, we have no need of you. They say basically, oh, we might, you might have a gift, but you should be using it elsewhere. and, and then they they tell women that they can go and minister in contexts that weren't even possible in the first century. It's it's a total uh, misapplication, misunderstanding that none of these none of these um, limitations could have been could have been possible. It's like either m- women would be allowed to minister their uh, gifts when they were gathered together, or they were not. But Paul, I would say, once you read through First Corinthians twelve through fourteen. You take it with as straightforward as straightforwardly as you can, without all these qualifications. Every single person has got a gift. Every single person is valuable. Let's move on to the real heart of the controversy for Paul and gender. Mm-hmm. First Timothy two, which I know at least the Junior Project says, you know, diffusing the First Timothy two bomb. That's how it comes across in a lot of contexts. Uh, you comprehensively treat numerous aspects of this text all the way through your book before 
coming at it head on in the last chapter. You talk about various aspects in your chapter on creation, in your chapter on fall, in your chapter on authority. So what led you to approach for Timothy 2 from the angle or angles you did dispersed as the topics are throughout the book? Right. Well, we didn't ever do a, a synopsis of the book. So one of the bu- things that makes the book different is the male and female treatment. Another thing that makes the book really different for something that talks about gender is that the chapters aren't organized around an exegesis of the passages that people have considered traditionally to be gender passages. Instead, it has been more of a biblical theology. And my first two chapters are more talking about how context plays into interpretation and looking at stereotypes and gender. That is kind of topical. But then I actually, as you said, I actually um, look at well, I recognized that so many of these passages dealt with um, creation in the fall. And so I said, well, let's look at Paul's theology of creation, and then we'll look at the gender roles within the overlying theology. And what I was doing with that is I was really bringing out how certain understandings was of, of of gender and creation was in absolute conflict with some of his other teachings about creation. And we want to have a coherent understanding of creation in which our discussions of gender in that context fit together. We, we want, we don't want to, um, as we don't want to, because of our interpretations, place uh, Paul in contradiction uh, with himself, or, you know, say with the, with the uh, First Timothy 2, some people think Paul didn't write it. I actually deal with that. You can think Paul didn't write it, but you still have to recognize that First Timothy says it's written by Paul, and it places itself in the context of Paul's life. So even if you uh, believe that it's pseudonymous, um, or written by a Pauline group, you still have to interpret it as Pauline, and I, I think to actually act like it's totally out of the camp is actually not what it's not what the text says about itself. So whether you think Paul wrote it, whether you think he didn't write it, you still have to interpret it with the rest of Paul, because that's what it's doing. It's interpreting itself with the rest of Paul, regardless of who wrote it. So um, at any rate, I think I've just lost my train of thought. <laughs> Pick me up again. Well, I just I, I'm I'm curious um, how you came to this approach. I'm, oh, I'm really approach. asking. Yeah, right, I'm really I'm asking about, about methodology, doing, which I know you love yeah, to talk about. <laughs> do, starting at it by topics, because yeah. uh, most of the gender passages have something to do with creation in the fall, and also then I threw in eschatology because I said really um, eschatology has a mm-hmm. huge has a huge impact on the teaching of gender. It's usually totally left out of Mm -hmm, the picture. mm -hmm. What's going to happen? And um, how is there... And Paul always talks about living within the shadow of the second coming, if Mm. I can use that expression. I like it. He he talks... And so, basically, he says, basically, this is what you're going to be doing in the new world. When Christ comes again, this is how you're going to behave. You're going to be judging angels. You better start acting like it. Mm. And so, uh, one of Paul's basic presuppositions is is that the, the present um, activity and function of the church should be directly influenced by the goal, the eschatological goal of the church, which is the opposite of a lot of times what's being argued in the um, in the area of gender roles mm. and gender function in the church. Uh, a lot of people believe that women will have authority and they believe that women are going to rule, but they have to be, and that women are going to be you know, te- functioning in every way like men. But now you have to restrict them. Anyway, so I dealt with things topically, and I dealt with the issues of things like calling and authority. And um, and then I felt, no, we really do have to deal with this passage in, in with a more detailed exegesis, because this is in the, when everything's said and done, if I didn't actually uh, give a reading on this passage that was compelling, Everything I said would not be very convincing because a lot of people will say, oh, that's all fine and good. But but I get to First Timothy 2 and I just see there has to be a prohibition. And what's really interesting about that statement is no one really understands what the prohibition is. And so that the, the understanding that women have prohibitions of their function in the church has has just come down to what I call the theology of drawing the line. Mm. It's like we don't exactly know where the line is drawn. We just believe it's got to be drawn. What I would say is is the first thing to recognize about First Timothy two 
is there's nothing in the text that says this is about the order of worship, except for the subtitle that your editor put in there. (laughs) If you actually take that subtitle out and read it, and you read it with fresh eyes, which is really, really hard, I would say it's extremely unlikely that this is instructions about the order of church worship. There are no signals to say so in the text. It is about something else. What is it about? Well, you'll have to read my chapter. (laughs) Well, I was just going to ask you a question. Can you give us uh, a brief explanation of your take on 1 Timothy 2, just uh, the highlights of your take on 1 Timothy 2, so that people can leave with an understanding of maybe how they should read this passage or another way to approach this passage. Well, first of all, uh, you have to look at 1 Timothy and what it's about. And 1 Timothy is correcting false teaching. And when you read the whole book, you start getting an understanding about what that false teaching is. And you, you actually will come to an understanding that a lot of the false teaching has gender orientations. And so as soon as he talks about saying uh, to Timothy, he's got to correct this false teaching in, in, in 1 Timothy 2, 1, he talks about, starts talking about the antidotes to false teaching. And it's uh, things like, you know, the kind of gospel that is preached. And then he focuses in on men and says to lift their hands without anger disputing. If you look through the whole rest of the text, you realize there's a lot said about anger and arguments in the text. I would suggest that Paul thinks that the anger and arguments in the church at Ephesus uh, are a male problem. It's not women that are duking it out and getting, and, and it's not the women there that are manifesting anger problems. But then when he talks to the women, he talks to um, about, first starting talks about dress and stuff. And if you read through the whole of First Timothy and even read into Second Timothy, you will see that there are problems about apparel and problems about the way they are, the women are are conducting themselves, the problem in how widows are conducting themselves, and they very much line up with the passage. And this isn't about conduct in the worship service primarily. Primarily, this is about conduct in the home. And you never see in the rest of Timothy women being corrected for their behavior in a worship service. They're actually being corrected for behavior within the home. And first, Second uh, Timothy talks about uh, false teachers worming their way into households and preying on women. This is much more likely what the problem is when you take into account the whole book. Well, then it goes into, it goes from men and women to talking about a woman learning with submission, and then it talks about how a woman woman treats a man, gives the marriage passage, and it ends with a focus on childbirth and actually the damaging threat of childbirth and how to deal with it. I would suggest that the best way to understand that is to understand, first of all, in Greek, there is no word for husband and wife. So it goes from men and women, and then it talks about how a woman, one woman is relating to one man. You're talking about the marital relationship. When it gets backed up with a narrative from the marriage passage, that is Genesis 2 and 3, well, Genesis 2 is the marriage passage, and Genesis 3 is the fall, which impacts the marital relationship, you're talking about a, you're talking about behavior within marriage. And I think I could just leave it with that and say, so what, do, what childbirth and the idea of the impact of a woman, of, of, of childbirth, the threat of mater, uh, maternal mortality hmm. was huge. And the worst maternal mortality now is one in seven, a woman dies in one in seven births at the worst. And I would suggest that that's probably about what it is. So it was the leading cause of death for women. So childbirth was dealing with childbirth and understanding that the um, that a woman's uh, multiplying a woman's pain and labor in childbirth was the impact of the fall. Um, that he would go from talking about the creation of male and female in that marital relationship, go into the fall, and then directly address the consequences of the fall on women is to say there's something going on in Ephesus that has to do with processing the consequences of the fall on women and that's what they're doing and it could be 
it's very likely something to do with the worship of Aphrodite, but it doesn't have to be that. Hmm. It could be any number of things, um, and there are, there are hints on um, uh, on what the problem is in the rest of First Timothy, where it talks about. Um, Paul says, "Don't forsake the marriage bed," and you really get the idea that women may be opting for celibacy in marriage because they're afraid of having children, of, of dying in childbirth. Or, or or they actually think that having children and the pain of childbirth and the threat is a consequence of the fall. So the, the, hmm. the right hermeneutic would be don't have sex. So have mar- sexless, sexless marriages. Well, if you read 1 Corinthians 7, Paul would not be amused by that option. <laughs> he said it's, be- if it's better to marry than to burn. He would hmm. not at all be amused by marriages in which there wasn't a healthy sexual relationship. Right, don't this, deprive each other. Don't deprive by, each other. Yeah, so, by mutual consent, so and only say, for a time. And he's even saying widows, you know. It, mm. and it seems to contradict First Corinthians 7, but it really plays right into this thing mm-hmm. about the avoidance of sex and the whole thing, and some kind of weird teaching going on. Yeah. Well, that's, what I, that's what I opt for. That's what I like best, although I can see Aph- Aphrodite being... Well, I think that it's never one thing or the other thing. It's usually sure, it's a, a whole host of things. Yeah, a constellation and, of things mm-hmm. working together, and that constellation coming together in Ephesus is not a surprise at all, mm. given the the culture of the city. Well, we're almost out of time, and I just want to ask one final question. If there were one widespread practice, especially in evangelical North American churches, that would change as a result of your book, what what do you hope that would be? I'm fairly realistic. You know, of course you would hope that churches would just remove restrictions, uh, gender restrictions, but I think, you know, the first charge would just be for women to go ahead and do what they're called to do regardless. you got to do what you're called to do. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul did. And they didn't wait for everybody to give them permission. That's what I say in the beginning of the book, is to say we're called to follow Jesus, so everyone needs to be um, committed to doing what God created to do. You know, we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. I don't just say workmanship. How can I make that inclusive? <laughs> but we're God's work, the hands of the, the, the work of his hands created in Christ Jesus for good works. And therefore, if we get beat up or we get rejected, or we get frowned upon, or we're the only women in class, we'll suck it up. I hate to say it that way. I I, I don't mean to be, of course, they don't mean to be um, insensitive to the discouragement and of all kinds that women face. But basically, if we follow Christ or we follow Jesus, that we will follow him into tough places. And so if you're called to ministry, you're called to ministry. God knows who you are and where you are. And Mm. I just suggest you follow Jesus. Mm. Well, it's been an honor and a privilege to chat with you today, Cindy. (laughs) And I'm I'm so thankful to have this book to recommend to students, to recommend to colleagues, and as you say at the beginning in your dedication, to recommend to those ready to accept a paradigm shift from God because it really is such a thoughtful and insightful and holistic take on this topic. So thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.